Are you ready for the most informative, well-thought-out hockey podcast on the internet? You are? Sorry. It's just Crown Conversations with your hosts, Robin P. and James Nicholson. Hello, Kings fans, and welcome back to Crown Conversations. We are so thrilled to have Jim Fox with us today. We asked for 15 to 20 minutes of time. He gave us more than double that. So that's why we are splitting up his interview into two episodes. I'm going to dominate the beginning of the episode. Robin's going to get a question in edgewise, uh, despite me wanting to know everything about Jim Fox. We're going to go over a little bit of his history with the Kings, uh, his experiences as a player and a broadcaster, and what it's been like with COVID in this episode. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Fox. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. No problem. Thank you. Man, just to get started, you have spent basically a lifetime with the LA Kings organization. What was it like for you coming as a kid from Eastern Ontario, you know, setting your scoring record with the 67s to then walking into the room in LA and playing alongside the likes of a guy like Marcel Dion and what was that like for you? Was it a little bit of culture shock? Um, not, not really. Um, really didn't know a lot about Los Angeles when I came here. And to be honest, uh, my first year, fortunate enough to rent a, uh, a three-bedroom place uh, with uh, Larry Murphy and, and Greg Carrion. Uh, unfortunately, Greg passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, I kid with people. I say my first address in Los Angeles was 4214 The Strand in Manhattan Beach, California. So we were right on The Strand. Uh, it's a very small town there. I mean, you don't really think of L.A. as being small town, but it's so many small towns put together that when you, you know, you isolate yourself to a basic beach area, it really is, it's just like a quaint little community. So that really wasn't the case uh, coming to L.A., of course, the more time I spent, then you get a chance to enjoy more of the uh, scenery and the landmarks and the history and the tradition around Los Angeles. Uh, with the hockey team, yeah, it was, uh, you know, you, you just get drafted. You, you, you don't really care who you get drafted by. And then once you are, you just get there. And uh, Dave Taylor grew up in the same area that I grew up in. So he called me when I was drafted. And he just welcomed me to the Kings. And when I came here, it was just, uh, you know, you just kind of step in and be seen and not heard when you're a rookie and, uh, and try to get by that way. So having a guy like Dave Taylor around and having known him for so many years and obviously all of his time spent with the organization, what was it like to have kind of that continuity with a guy like him or maybe some other guys, well, a lot of other guys kind of came and went from the organization over that time? Yeah, it was actually very difficult uh, going to the latter part of what you're talking about. Um, the instability with the Kings during the time I was with them was it was the most important factor for a bad reason. It, it, was, it was so unstable. Uh, from year to year, the roster would change 8 to 10 to 12 players. Coaches would change. I played 10 years and nine different coaches. So that, that was the bad part. Um, it came to a point when finally uh, Phil Sykes, a friend of mine who was on the team, was traded away. And I'd been around a while, and I just 
I kind of said to myself, you know what, I'm not going to make any more friends with players that are coming in. <laughs> it was just too hard to lose everybody. Uh, everyone kept leaving. And fortunately for me, I was able to stick around and be around and be one of the few that was able to do that. Uh, but that, that didn't ease the pain of, of losing your friends every single year. Guys just get traded and it was a tough go. So uh, you just try to make your way through that way. Um, I really didn't know Dave when I came here. He called me, but we were about five years apart in age. So I never played against him, never really knew him. But um, him and his wife, Beth, were just great to me and my wife, Susie. And they took us under their wing. And that made it so easy the first two, three, four, five years until we got settled. Do you feel like it, there's anything special or particular about you and Dave that allowed you guys to stay in the organization for as long as you guys were a part of it? Well, I can talk to Dave. I know what was special about him, and that's just the will to win. Uh, he was the true competitor. He was the true teammate. He would go through a brick wall, all the cliches. He would, in hockey, he would spear you in the eye if it meant getting a loose puck or scoring a goal. <laughs> Uh, nothing stopped him, and, and that that certainly exuded through everyone uh, that played with Dave and that was around Dave. Um, I like to say that I was good enough to stay with the Kings, but not good enough where anyone's want, uh, no one else wanted me. So that's how I was able to stay around and, uh, again, just fortunate uh, to stay around after my playing career. I mean, there's been times where we've seen you chat with a guy like Marcel Dion, who has been effusive with praise for you. Yeah, and... and- to the point where we've seen you crack kind of a wry smile, maybe being a little bit uh, embarrassed by by the amount of praise. I mean, it, it's not like you were a guy who was, you know, not putting up points, not getting things done. You obviously had some skill in the league. What were some of the things that you prided yourself on in your game? Well, yeah. At the time when you're going through it, you're, you're trying to make the best of it. Um you know, I, I consider myself more of a playmaker than a scorer. Uh, my shot wasn't – my shot 10 feet in, 15 feet in was as good as anyone's. But uh, back in those days, it was very difficult to get to that spot uh, right. because of what was allowed and the hooking and the holding and the grabbing and the cross-checking and everything else. It was just very difficult to get to those areas. Uh so, you know, I like to move the puck around. I like to see the ice. Uh, I think that's what I tried to do. As I grew into it and I matured, I really started to see. It took me five or six years before I really started to see the importance of becoming an all-around player. As they say nowadays, a you know, 200-foot player. And, um, you know, my size probably worked against me, but I think I did put a lot of effort into that and a lot of thought and a lot of details on trying to make sure that, you know, the coaches could trust me and your teammates can trust you and all those types of things. So. I mean, when I look back, I mean, coming out of junior and the numbers I had there, I, I didn't live up to what I expected to do. Um, you know, I was, you know, as I was a top, top, top number one scorer in Canada, basically, when I was drafted. So, um, you know, just unfortunately didn't get to those numbers. We were okay numbers, but not the numbers I wanted to get to. You, you mentioned a little bit of the instability, that, that frustration that you had kind of year in, year out, losing guys. What's it like for everyone in the room, does it kind of feel when guys come in, do they kind of feel like they're a hired gun? They're here for a year, you know, and then they know they're, they're getting ready to move. What's that feeling like? I think what it does, unfortunately, I think it makes players think a lot about securing themselves and that's okay because you can't help the team unless you feel secure. 
but uh, I think it did take away from the team building aspect of, you know, we, we, we had my first year in 1980 had a great year. We were fourth overall in the league. And then the next year, you know, we had a play, no playoff success that year. And then the next year, basically the whole half the team's gone. And a decent year was, you know, good, bad, good, bad. But I don't think that unfortunately we were a, ever able to grow through the pains that you need to grow through as a group. And then come out the other side. They would just change everything. So, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that even if they kept a less skilled team, I think it would have been a more successful team just based on chemistry and trustworthiness amongst each other and amongst the players. And, and, and unfortunately, I just don't think that the groups I, were, I was involved in were able to do that because we just were not given that time. We weren't given the you know, sometimes in order to grow, you have to go through those pains. You have to go through the downs. You have to go through the losing, but hopefully keep a group together. So when they come out the other end, they look back on those days and it pulls them together as opposed to keeping them apart. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Man, I want to jump ahead in some questioning now with the timeline, just because talking about going through the, those rough patches, solidifying uh, the experience for the guys in the room, you know, how do you feel that might have happened for the guys this past year? Well, I guess two years with COVID and, and the shortened seasons. Well, I think that the Kings, just generally speaking, without COVID, even in entering the picture, you know, the franchise is at a stage where they are, rebuilding. So that does create some instability. It, it, what it does, and it's, it's an automatic, it's a norm, it's a normal situation. But what you have is maybe three, maybe four categories of players on the same team, meaning young guys that are really unsure of whether they're an NHL player. And then you have young guys who are NHL players, but they're looking to take the next step. Then you have NHL players that are, you know, solid. They're going to be around no matter if they're on the Kings or someone else, they're still going to be in the league. Then, of course, you have the superstars you know, like a Kopitar and a Dowdy and, and those types of guys. So but you have four categories of players, and that, that's just tough to bring together. But, again, if you keep that group together long enough again in a rebuild, uh, much like, you know, Dustin Brown went through with uh, Andre Kopitar and Drew Dowdy and Jonathan Quick when they were losing when they first came, but they grew through that. Um, COVID's a whole other thing. Uh, I can't begin to uh, talk about it because I wasn't in the room at the time. I know how it affected me, but in all honesty, for my job, it actually made it easier because there wasn't really any travel involved. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that the facilities that were put in front of us to do the job off of a monitor were fine and they were great and they were technically sound so we could do our jobs. Uh, as a player, I'm not really sure how it affected the, them. I, I'm sure there will be studies on it. I'm sure they'll take a look at it and, you know, you can pay a player as much as you want, eight, 10, 12, 15, 20, $30 million. It just doesn't, it still doesn't take away from the fact that they're a human being and they have uh, feelings and uh, COVID uh, affected the whole world. And I'm sure when they look back on it and study it, there'll be some effects and probably lasting effects on players too. 
obviously we've talked a lot about the pandemic. So kind of what was your process pre-pandemic? So what was it ordinarily like to prepare for games? And then how did all that change because of the pandemic? The preparation didn't change that much other than the fact what I was preparing for and how I was preparing didn't change except for attendance at practice. So we didn't attend practice. We had Zoom calls every day with players or meet, uh, or coaches. So that happened. So your, your interaction was still there. It just wasn't face-to-face. And we were unable to watch practice. So for me, I would go and, you know, at the end of practice, I pretty much figured out what the theme of that practice was that day, usually addressing something that happened the night before or something they're really working on. You know, you just go into the numbers, power play, struggling, you work on the power play. But you didn't get a chance to actually see that. And that was the most difficult thing. I was not able to really bring in anything from practice into a game. But the the compilation, compiling all the information was basically the same, just through Zoom. Uh, It's it's It did save time. So just, you know, the time it takes to drive to practice and home. You can spend in front of your computer doing Zoom. You can spend, you know, automatically doing your notes, getting clips from around the league. Uh, That could all be done. Uh, but again, you couldn't attend in person. Um, the game day was again, no morning skate to go to, although there were zoom calls and production calls. So normally with no COVID, we would have a production meeting at about four forty-five the night of the game at Staples center. Um, this year with COVID, we would have that meeting after the zoom calls in the morning with the team. So about noon, we'd have zoom calls. So that would be all done. I found it more intense to, to prepare. I, there was less distraction. Um, now, doing the games at Staples Center, the home games, we were able to do them there. Of course, the road games, we did them off a monitor, either at the Microsoft Theater across the street, or there was a makeshift studio outside of Staples Center, right by the tunnel. So we're calling the game off a monitor, which has its challenges. For the play-by-play guy, Alex, it's more difficult because he's calling the game live. For an analyst, it's not as difficult because I've already seen the play basically before I have to communicate. I've seen it. I'm looking at a replay. I'm doing That's basically what I'm doing. The one thing, if I get more specific, is this. Because of the facilities available or lack of and how they had to be cut back, each game was produced on more of what they would call a world feed concept, meaning... You don't get too specific to one team because the other team can't share in that. So what happens is when we're doing a home game or a normal road game, during a play, I can get on a talkback button and say to the producer, at the whistle, give me Dustin Brown. Whistle blows, boom, camera goes to Dustin Brown. That's all pre-done. We have more control non-COVID. Under covid The production was done with the visiting team in mind also. So we would show more generic replays, concentrating less on the Kings and more on both teams. So both teams were able to get the same amount of access, so to speak, to the replays. And so, for instance, my use of the Telestrator, which I do quite a bit more than most, I could not do that over a live replay, meaning a replay that just came up. No, I'd have to wait till we came back from a commercial and do it over a replay there. Just little things like that. Um, but the actual preparation really didn't change that much. Uh, of course, we didn't travel. And 
for someone who's been traveling for 40 years, uh, that can be a positive. <laughs> Did you miss it? Not traveling? There are so many things to miss, but I'll tell you what, I, I missed it, but it was taken over by an even bigger positive. How's that? The ability to just stay home. <laughs> it's interesting for me to hear about you know, appreciating the lack of travel. Uh, I mean, you've, you've been on the road for such a long part of your life or large part of your life, I should say. But I mean, I used to talk to Rosie when you guys would get back from trips and he would tell me about all the different places you guys got to go eat dinner at. Um, especially being a guy who's very into the culinary arts, such as yourself. Are there any particular places on the road that you miss going to for a bite? Well, it's tough to single out one. I, I would say we have, we have places in every city. Um, and depending on whether we get a new contact in that city or not, we usually go back to the same place, the same place, the same place. But um, I think what John was talking about there is just the ability to get together as a group. And, you know, you go to work, you go to practice during the day, you go back to your room and you do your work and you do your notes for the next night. And then you get a chance to go out and have a nice dinner. And that happens basically every off day that we're there. And it's the most enjoyable part of travel, no question. Uh the food, the wine, and the the conversation, the conversation, which doesn't have to deal with hockey. A lot of times it did, but it doesn't have to deal with that. Uh, if there was one place, I would say it's a, a place in St. Louis, Charlie Guido's. It's a family style Italian restaurant. So it's not fine dining. It's nothing special, but it's um, has kind of a sports theme. Uh, their owner recently passed away, um, Charlie, and uh, but his son still runs it. And, you know, you can tell just by the staff and how long they've been there, um, the food that they serve, and um, usually the free bottle of wine that we're given when we come in. Uh, that's, you know, they take care of you, and, and you don't forget those types of things. So uh, I think it would be Charlie Guido's on, in St. Louis. And, uh, again, if you ever walked in there, it wouldn't be something special for you as far as, well, look at how swanky this is. But um, I think I've probably been there, man, I've been there 25 times, and I really miss it. Once again, a huge thank you to Jim Fox for being a part of this episode. We have a whole other part of the interview where he, we get into Patina Sellers. We go into his broadcasting style. We go into, I mean, Robin asks him about how he comes up with puns, and that is an absolute treat. So please make sure you are subscribed to Crown Conversations wherever you listen so you don't miss out on Jim Fox's insider pun info. Thank you and have a great day.